So I assume it's my turn. My turn. <laughs> well, today is Father's Day, and if any of you are Francophiles, let me remind you that uh, next Sunday in French-speaking Canada is Jean-Baptiste Day. We sure don't want to miss that, I know. But today is Father's Day. <laughs> Father's Day's had a hard time getting started. The first time anyone ever had a day to honor fathers was in West Virginia in 1908. 362 men had been killed in a coal mine disaster the previous December. And so in a small church in West Virginia, they decided to honor those men. And they had a day and called it Father's Day because most of the men who died had been fathers. The first statewide celebration of Father's Day happened in 1910. There was a man named Dodd who lived in the state of Washington. His wife died shortly after the birth of their sixth child. He did not remarry, but he spent the next several years rearing all six children, being both father and mother. He had a daughter named Sonora. And in 1909, on Mother's Day, they were celebrating mothers, and Sonora thought, I don't have a mother to honor, but I have a father who's been both father and mother to me. I want to honor him, but there's no day to do so. And so she began to visit merchants. She went to the YMCA. She began meeting with church leaders, saying, we need to have a day to honor father. She even visited with some state legislatures. And so in 1910, in July... As a result of all of her efforts, the entire state of Washington, statewide, had a Father's Day. Well, the merchants thought this was great. They made a lot of money. It was like a second Christmas. And other merchants began to notice it, and the idea began to spread and spread. And finally, more and more states began to celebrate Father's Day to the point that President Coolidge in 1924 said, Even though it's not legal, we urge all states to have a Father's Day. Now, there were some fathers that didn't like this. They said, you're trying to reduce us to a group of sentimental women, especially those that give us flowers. I kind of relate to that a little bit. You know, we heard a few years ago and still goes on, we men need somehow to find our feminine side. I'll tell you, if my wife ever found out I had a feminine side, she'd punch me out. <laughs> feminine side horse feathers <clears throat> but still it prevailed then in 1920s an interesting thing happened a movement began to get rid of both Mother's Day and Father's Day and to have a Parents Day and there were huge rallies promoting this radio stations promoting it get rid of Mother's Day get rid of Father's Day but have a Parents Day in the 1930s, Depression hit, and that just went away. Father's Day struggled until World War II. And merchants, again, got in the game. <laughs> well, we have all these fathers that are overseas, and we can honor them by Father's Day. And, of course, in their minds, it was a means of more income, but it grew. Ever since then, Father's Day has been in 1972. President Nixon, in the midst of a very challenging 
re-election campaign sent forth a proclamation that the third Sunday of every June will be a national holiday, Father's Day. Now, it's okay because, you see, being on Sunday, that doesn't interfere with what the merchants are doing. And so the merchants were happy to sell pipes and tobacco and other things for fathers, Father's Day. If there's any man in this church who is qualified to talk about being a father, if you base that on how many progeny you have, I probably qualify. (laughs) Four sons and a daughter, 11 grandsons, two granddaughters, five step-grandchildren, last count, I think, 20 great-grandchildren and now great-greats, but I still don't feel qualified to speak on that subject. Not only that, the Lord has not directed me to do so. As I prayed about this day, uh, the Lord really called back to mind something I've spoken on before, and I thought, well, Lord, you don't want me to talk about that again, and yet the more and more I prayed, it seemed indeed that that was his will. To speak about the relationship between God the Father and his Son. Primary text will be John 5, but an introductory text for it would be Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, who long ago spoke through the prophets many different times in many different ways, in these last days has spoken unto us in his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And after he had made atonement for sins, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. Those verses summarize a lot the relationship between the Father and the Son. But the last 30 verses of John chapter 5 reveal a lot about that relationship. Let me give you the background. The background begins the year before. Jesus, with a few of his disciples, had come to Jerusalem. The vernal equinox had happened, and now was the Passover, and they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they entered the temple. Now, Jesus had been in the temple many, many times before, Coming from a very devout Jewish family, they would travel each year to Jerusalem and enter the temple and participate in the Passover in this holy city. Throughout all those years, he had seen the money changers at the table. You see, the Sadducees, the priests who ran the temple, had really turned it into a money-making enterprise. Every Jew had to pay a temple tax, but they said we can accept only a talent in temple tax, and talents no longer were in distribution. Everyone used a denarius. And so if you wanted to pay the temple tax, which you had to do, you had to go to a money changer and buy a talent with denarii. And then that talent was put in the temple tax and put back and sold again and again and again. 
If you wanted to sacrifice a lamb, you could not sacrifice a lamb unless it was one that had been purchased by a merchant who gave a profit to the priests. If you wanted to sacrifice an ox, the same thing was true, or a dove. Jesus had seen that throughout his life. But this time he was no longer a Jewish boy. He was no longer just a Jewish young man. Because some months before he had left his hometown of Nazareth and traveled east to the river Jordan where his cousin John the Immerser was immersing people under repentance, declaring to prepare the way of the Lord, the kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus had traveled that distance to John. We spoke about this, I think, a sermon or two ago, but repeat it here. He came to the Jordan River, and John saw his cousin. Remember, John had been filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his birth. And he recognized his cousin Jesus and knew who he was. John said, I can't immerse you. You should be immersing me. But Jesus said, it is the will of God to prepare the way of the Lord. I am the Lord, but it is God's way for all to be immersed. Therefore, immerse me. And you remember as they came up out of the water, the heavens opened. And out of the heavens came a dove. It was the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And he sat upon Jesus. He didn't just touch him, but the scripture says... He abode upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I have well pleased. The Holy Spirit then led Jesus into the wilderness. Forty days and forty nights he fasted. And at the end of that time, Satan came to him, you remember, with three temptations. You're hungry? Turn these stones to bread, Jesus said. It is written, Thou shalt live the bread of the word of God, and so on. Fall down and worship me, it is written. You shall worship only the Lord thy God. Took him to the temple, jump off and land, and everybody will follow you. If there is to be a cross, you won't have to face it. But Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The Holy Spirit was upon him. He had passed the test. He returned home. And then a few days later, he and his mother and what few disciples he now had gathered because John had said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and son of John's disciples were following him. They went to Cana and they were having a wedding feast and they ran out of wine. And you remember how Mary maneuvered things and Jesus turned the water into wine. And so on this occasion, as Jesus and his disciples came to the temple for Passover, he no longer was just a Jewish boy. He no longer was just a Jewish young man. He now was the anointed one, the Messiah with authority. And what a scene it must have been as he grabbed the tables of the money changers and threw them over and the coins scattered on the floor. 
He took a whip made of cords and drove out the animals, probably the money, the people who were selling as well. And he said, the one selling doves, you've made God's house of prayer a place of merchandise. Jesus was angry and he cleaned house. Well, that sure didn't sit well with the priests. (laughs) Jesus became their enemy because he was depriving them by his actions of their income. Well, they did recover. Two years later, he did the same thing all over again. But a year later, he was back in Jerusalem again for the Passover. We read no description of anything that happened in the temple on that time, but wandering the streets of Jerusalem... He came upon a portico, a portico that consisted of arches with huge columns. There was no roof. There was no floor. But instead of a floor, there was a vast pool of water surrounded by a walkway, and the portico was crowded with people. Every so often, not on any set schedule, the water would become turbulent, And the tradition was, although it was wrong, it became a tradition that really it was an angel that was causing this. And then the first one in the water would be healed. And so there were crowds of people. And every time the water would become turbulent, people would try to jump in and get out and not healed. I guess I wasn't first. Jesus walked into the portico and saw this vast group of people in pain, people suffering from all kinds of diseases. And he looked at one man and said, do you want to be made well? The man said, I I can't. don't have anybody put me in the water. And when I get in, I'm not the first. Jesus said, take up your pallet and walk. The man was surprised. (laughs) He could get up and take his pallet and walk. He looked around and Jesus was gone. He didn't know who he was. Later that day, Jesus was in the temple, and he saw this man, and he walked up to him and said, Don't you sin anymore, or else a worse thing will happen to you. We wonder what the sin had been before. The man now knew who Jesus was. The man first had been encountered by the priests, and they had scolded him. What are you doing carrying your pallet on the Sabbath day? Oh, Well, a man who healed me told me, who is that man? He went to the priest now, said, I know who he was. It's that fellow over there. And so the priest went to Jesus and began to scold him and berating him for violating the Sabbath. And his response, the first one we see as in John chapter 5, as we begin to look at our text, he said, verse 17, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Boy, that made him madder than ever. (laughs) Because not only had he told a man to violate the Sabbath, but now he's declaring himself to be equal to God. I'm his son. And no doubt there were those who remembered a year before, this is the guy that interrupted our commercial enterprise. 
But Jesus continued to recite some very important things. And the first thing we see coming out of his dialogue, or rather his discourse, really, is that Jesus was not an independent agent doing his own thing. Verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here we're starting to get a picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Genesis class last uh, January, February, talking about knowledge of God, we use this as an illustration. I think it fits again. Our knowledge of God will always be asymptotic. Some of you probably remember in your high school geometry class, you created an asymptotic diagram in which you had a vertical line and a horizontal line and another vertical line that moved halfway toward the horizontal line and then another halfway and another halfway and finally halfway and a halfway on out to infinity but never touching the horizontal line. Our knowledge with God will always be asymptotic. I don't care how long you live, how much you study the Bible, how much you walk with God. It's never quite fully grasped. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He said, and the Greek says this, we see through a mirror a puzzle. <laughs> That's interesting, that language. He uses dia, which means through. King James says glass, but the Greek says mirror. Modern, modern, modern versions say mirror. And then it's the word from which uh, we struggle to try to define something. And we say it's enigma. That's the Greek word, ag agenos. It's an enigma, a puzzle. And it's interesting to me that he uses the word dia, which means through with the genitive. So we see through a mirror. <laughs> now, does that mean that we're trying to see something on the other side of a mirror and it's a puzzle? Or does it mean that our vision goes into the mirror and is reflected and that way it is through? And, of course, in those days they didn't have mirrors like we have today. The only mirror they had was polished brass. And always that was not too good a reflection. But he says our knowledge of God will always be an enigma. The Greek word meaning puzzle. He said someday I will know as I am now known when I die and go be with Jesus or when he comes. But right now our knowledge of God is an enigma. I don't care how close we get. It's always asymptotic. We're not quite there. And yet we do see various things that help us to understand that. And here we're beginning to see a relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus said, I cannot do anything on my own initiative. He said, 
All I do is what I see the Father doing. This calls to mind Luke chapter 2. When Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, was brought to the temple by his parents on Passover, and you remember they left without him and finally came back and found him and were scolding him, and he said, I must be about my father's business. (laughs) Even then he was saying, I must be about my father's business. And that's the spirit that prevailed in Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And that's the spirit that should prevail in every one of us. As illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount, we spoke a couple of Wednesdays ago at a house church and brought this forth. Remember the closing portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many on that day will say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? And Jesus said in that day, I will say to them, Depart from me, ye who work lawlessness. The Greek word is anomos. No rule, no law. You were doing your own thing. You were not doing the will of the Father. Depart from me, you lawless ones. I never knew you. Think about that. Prophesied in Jesus' name. Cast out demons. (laughs) Did miracles. But they weren't doing it at the direction of the Father. They were doing their own thing. My brother and my sister, it's important that we take time to seek the will of the Father and be sure we're not doing our own thing. New Testament church leaders do not ask, what do we want? They do not ask, what do the people want? Neither do they ask, what will work? But what does God want done here? What does the voice of God say? Some of us in the 1980s were students in a course taught by John Wimber, Signs and Wonders. Some of you probably remember his courses. One of his John Wimber had was hearing the voice of God. He said, when someone comes to you for healing, don't start to pray. But pause and ask, what is God doing here? And then pray according to the leading of God. God may be working on someone's character to heal them physically would abort that. I don't know about you, but there are times I find that to be true. I I find myself in the presence of someone and I ought to pray for healing, but I just don't feel released to do it. Has that ever happened to you? It does to me. (laughs) And I wish I could be perfect in knowing the mind of God in every situation I don't. First John says, this is a confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request we've asked him. But according to his will, I need to know the will of God. 
and pray that way. But the point here is Jesus was not an independent agent. And he set that model for us. And Matthew chapter 7, those closing verses emphasize that. We must be doing the will of the Father, not our will, not our human reason, not our human judgment, but what is the will of the Father. We know that first by study the word, but second by prayer as we face individual situations. The second thing is the sovereignty of the Father that comes out in Jesus' ministry. Matthew 8, Mark 1, Luke 4, we read of an episode that happened when Jesus and his disciples visited the home of Peter's mother-in-law. And she was sick. And Jesus touched her hand. She was immediately healed and got up and served them as a good hostess. That evening, word got around that Jesus was in the neighborhood, and we hear about great hosts of people coming, bringing multitudes of sick people with all sorts of illnesses. Some were demon-possessed. Jesus healed every one of them, delivered those that were possessed of demons. Matthew chapter 4, 23 to 24, we read of another interesting episode. This time, Jesus was in Galilee, And all kinds of people were coming to him. Matthew tells us there were those in pain. There were demoniacs. And then the next word is interesting. (laughs) Some of your versions say epileptics. It is the word that means moonstruck. We have the word lunatic. The Latin word for moon is luna. To the Greeks, it's selene, so is the selenonidzomai. You see, their belief was that if you're out at night and too much moonlight got on you, you could get mentally ill. And epilepsy was moved by the various phases of the moon. So it says Jesus healed those that were in pain. He delivered those that were demon-possessed. And then he healed the mentally ill. Isn't that something? To see those categories there in Matthew 4, 23 and 24, every single one of them, Jesus healed every affliction that he faced. But what about the Bula Bethesda? Here was a host of people, all kinds of pain, all kinds of sickness, and Jesus ignored every one of them except that one man. And he said, I did it because I saw that's what the Father was doing. I didn't see him healing everybody else. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John came to the temple, the morning of prayer. And there was a crippled man there who was asking for alms. Peter looked at him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such I have give I thee. Stand up. The man stood up, and he was healed. Now, a couple of things come forth out of this. Seven times in the Gospels, we find Jesus described as a compassionate person. Again, the pool of Bethesda, here were all of these people. If he were a compassionate person, 
How could he ignore them? But he did only what he saw the Father doing. Some people say, well, the key, of course, is faith. Jesus said he could not do many, or the scriptures say, Jesus could not do many miracles in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. Jesus one night prayed all night on a mountain, and there was a man who came to the foot of the mountain with the, where the disciples were waiting, and he had a son who was demon-possessed. This demon would cause the boy to throw himself in the fire sometimes, and disciples tried they'd cast out demons before but nothing would happen with this one and jesus came down and the man approached jesus oh master if it be possible jesus said if it be possible believe all things are possible to those that believe not guaranteed but possible the man in honesty said lord i believe but help thou my unbelief and jesus cast out the demon the disciples said why can't we do that Jesus said, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Notice an interesting thing. Jesus didn't stop and pray. He didn't stop and fast. He'd been praying all night. Yet I is spiritual power comes from living a life of prayer and communicating with God. So is faith the answer? The blind men, he said, be it unto you according to your faith. The man of Bethesda had no faith. <laughs> He didn't respond to his faith. He responded to his healing. The crippled man, the gate beautiful, healed at the ministry of Peter. He didn't have any faith. He responded to his healing. How can we explain this? It's ansynthotic. <laughs> we see through a mirror a puzzle. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and no one can fully explain the sovereignty of God. But it is important to us to seek his will, do his will, discern it in scripture study, in prayer, and at times when we admit we don't know it, I just don't know what to do, and pray for God to give guidance. The clock is moving we will mention a third thing, the eminence of the Father. In some quarters, so much focuses on Jesus, God is totally absent, God the Father. Some places it's Holy Spirit. God the Father is hardly ever mentioned. But biblically, the eminence of the Father is always recognized. Remember that Hebrews 1 passage, after he had made atonement for sins, he sat down at the right hand of who? Majesty on high. Majesty on high. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father. And every prayer from Pentecost on is always to the Father, never to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is never spoken to, but the focus is always on the Father. There's possibly one exception where Paul said, I thank the Lord for putting me in ministry. Maybe he means Jesus, probably does there. 
because it was Jesus who encountered him on the road to Damascus and launched him into apostolic ministry. That's the only possible exception from Pentecost onward of any prayer ever being offered to anyone other than God the Father. Even as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. The eminence of the Father, we could say much more about that, but time is fleeting. And the fourth point that comes out of these verses is this. We honor the Father by honoring the Son. Verse 23. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And Philippians 2.11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We live in an age in which Jesus is in charge because in that passage in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says Jesus now upholds all things by the word of his power. 1 Corinthians 5, or 15 rather, describes the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ and it says... He will reign until he has defeated the last enemy, and the last enemy is death. And when that happens, he will hand the kingdom over to the Father. This day, we're living in an age in which the Son's in charge. But here's something that's a mystery, isn't it? Roman tells us that Jesus ever, Romans 8, ever lives to make intercession for us. And Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he, our great high priest, makes, to whom is he making intercession if he's in charge? As in <laughs> I don't care how much you study, how much you wrap your mind around it. We never can quite lock in a solid definition, can we? <laughs> but thank God for the revelation he has given us. So in John 5, we see four truths. Jesus set the model for us in living in a submitted ministry rather than being freelance agents doing our own thing. The sovereignty of the Father in all things must be recognized. The eminence of the Father must be recognized. And when we honor the Son, we honor the Father. I thank God for Holy Scripture, for the leading of the Holy Spirit. May his name be praised. Amen.